It's better sometimes when we don't get to touch our dreams. Harry Chapin. In the beginning. Native American hummingbird symbol. The very first night I visited Arches National Park in 1986, I arrived in the pitch of a moonless night. The entrance booths were unmanned so I scofflawed into the park, followed the climbing, winding road all 20 miles to the campground hoping for a night of uninterrupted sleep. Unfortunately, the campground was full. I had to find another place to sleep in this unfamiliar part of the world. At the time I did not know that most of Grand County, Utah is public lands and I could have slept just about anywhere except in the national park proper. I headed back toward the entrance figuring I would find a pull-out and car sleep. There were hints of giants in the periphery of the car lights but special revelation was hidden by the Sumerian shade. The epiphany I would experience and carry with me 34 years into the future at their growing disclosure and acutely angled morning light was still hours away. The only form I was able to clearly see in the narrow cone emitted from the headlights was a jackrabbit standing in the middle of the road masticating greenery with practice nonchalance. The jack had ears so long they would make Johnny Holmes envious. I had to slow down for the big bunny didn't seem to fear my small pickup truck. It eventually and ever so slowly meandered toward the roadside so I could pass without harm to the bunny, blood splatter on the vehicle, or gut smeared across the road. Halfway back to the entrance, I pulled into the parking lot at the base of Balanced Rock, a structure that appeared to be a void against the backdrop of the Milky Way carpet on the new moon night. Balanced Rock, a large rock balanced on a narrow, stone pedestal. Balanced implies precarious. Balanced implies instability. Balanced implies perilous. Balanced rock is anything but precarious. Balanced rock has been fixed and content and stable for many more years than I've been alive. Balanced rock is much more stable than my life or mind, for that matter, has ever been. Not that I am complaining. Stability taken too far is boring, life-sucking. At the moment, I was buzzing, vibrating from balancing extreme fatigue from cannonballing my small, two-wheel drive pickup truck more than 1,300 miles starting in Chicago across the exceedingly boring Midwest, over the Rocky Mountains and cruising into arches in a little over 36 hours and my extreme excitement at visiting a place I fantasized about ever since reading Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey, a book that is more Bible for me than the Christian Bible. Deep down, my agitation was exacerbated wondering if the fantasy would overshadow reality as it usually does. Spoiler, the reality transcended the fantasy. It was the era the Reagans declared their unholy war on drugs, way before dubage was legal meaning I had no agricultural or non-prescription means to mellow myself into a relaxed sleep approaching eternal rest. Hoping for the best but expecting fidgety misery, I pulled my hat down over my eyes and tucked into sleep in the front seat only to be rousted a short while later by the on-duty park ranger looking for scofflaws flaunting national park rules. Sleeping in other than the designated campground was, still is, Strictly prohibited and backcountry permits were only available during visitor center operating hours. Irritated, I fired up the truck, headed out on the unimproved, dirt road, BLM 378 aka Willow Springs Road, running perpendicular to the main tourism thoroughfare, and drove as close to the park boundary as I could get in two-wheel drive, outside the easy reach of John Law, and immediately killed the engine. I grabbed my sleeping bag from the jumble in the passenger seat. I slept in the truck when the drive proved fatiguing and took the opportunity to bedgasm on the hard, naked earth, didn't bother with the inflatable mattress, quickly succumbing to exhaustion. My sleep was slashes normally too fitful to drop into RAM and lose myself in dreamland. If I did dream, they were burned off with the morning light like a lingering do never to be remembered, fully. Flashes of insight and confusion and terror? For sure. A continuous narrative? Never. 
That night contained a rare vividness to the dreamscape that wormed its way into my consciousness even after waking, an LSD-type hallucination still revealing itself in flashbacks of recollection and understanding years into the future. I'm still remembering forgotten details, grasping revelations. The dreamscape is slowly filling into a coherent whole. Yet, numerous gaps plague my recollection. I need a many-colored Joseph. The dream. I'm running, sunlight digs into my face, running up a hill of blinding white sand, overheated but not sweating. I thirst. I thirst. I want to stop and die but the smell of a juniper perched on the high desert plain, a siren screaming my name, pulls me along. My mouth waters. The gnarled juniper is perched at the crest, beckoning. I redouble my efforts yet headway is not made. The juniper moves further away with every sliding footfall. I need to run just to stand still. Am I running from or to? From the bed of blood-tipped nails leering from the bottom of the dune or running toward the promise of an unseen desert plain shrouded in the distance? Both? Maybe? Maybe just running to run? Running to hide? I fall on my face. Stone cut into my cheeks and lips. I force myself up onto all fours. Bear crawl inch by inch. My feet are cold, knees bleeding, hands freezing. The sand is icy. The sand is not sand. It is snow. I'm crawling up a mountain and feeling a natural high when I reach the peak. Is this what I'm looking for? Ah quickly dissipates leaving me feeling empty. Empty. Always emptiness. I stick my hand in the gaping void where my heart used to be. That's why I feel empty. So cold. I'm so cold. I reach toward the flaming sun seeking a measure of heat. Seeking rescue. I long to feel sunlight on my face, need to feel the dancing flame warm my soul. I crave the high desert plain promised by the juniper. It is where I feel most content. Most spiritual? Desert cannons are where I expect to find the David the first am looking for. The David the first know I must be. The David the first want to be? I need to meditate in a red rock cave. Run. Run. Run away. Run. Run. Run away. Dream gap. I feel heartbeats through the palms of my hands. I'm walking a high desert plateau. How did I get here? The walls are steep. There's no way up or down. I realize I'm holding the cold hand of the devil in my right, the burning hand of God in my left. Equilibrium in my core. Heat balancing cold. Two beings sharing one heart of darkness. I feel their unified heartbeat. My lips moisten. Sweet sins sour my mouth. I scream in the tongues of angels uttering demon words. I wrestle the angel, wrangle the demon. Force angel impregnation with the demon's seed. The turquoise sky rips open, a gaping wound, dripping blue blood. World War I era propeller planes dogfight, shoot crosses at each other, dodge, crash, explode, set flowers of fire to the sky. Fiery flame wreckage rains down from the heavens pelting earth, pelting me. There is no shelter from this poison rain. Needle fragments from the splintered crosses pierce my skin, twisting, screwing deeper into my flesh, stinging rain, burning rain. My eyes turn to stone, can't unsee the pain flashing in my head. Dream Gap The sky is crystal. I stand barefoot quaking in pain on top of a very tall saguaro with a half-dozen ancient arms reaching for the heavens. Blood trickles from my souls. It is one of seven giant cacti leading to cooling shade under an alcove. I can't leap from cactus to cactus so there is no way out. For deliverance, I cry to God with dust tears. When that doesn't work, I beseech the devil with invisible words. Scream. Scream. Scream without sound into the emptiness. I try to stay calm and drive the nightmare away. I need new dreams. A howling wing knocks me from my perch. I fall, fall, fall into an arroyo, 
a dry riverbed where I hit my spine on a pointed rock. Can't move. Paralyzed. I'm playing beneath a vast desert sky, cloudless sky. Fierce sun. Rock scarring sun. Sun so bright it passes through my body, eats my shadow. Shadowless? Humanless? If the dream fades does this dreamer die? Dream gap. I am staked to the ground. My body is bruised, scarred. Hot. So hot. I wait all day for night to come begging the sky for mercy. There's dry rain but no dry water to cool my sizzling skin. Dusty wind scours my flesh. A river flash floods toward me. She is raging. A debris-laden wave wall scouring my body, scrubs off my clothes on the way to the sea, running to the sea where it will drown in the diamonds dancing on the waves. Hanging on to emptiness. Bliss. Peace. Laying low I see high into the black sky. Waiting. Waiting for blood moon to rise over a lone, twisted juniper, most gnarled branches devoid of leaves, perched on a red outcropping. Burned pink, I blossom into a desert rose. The desert, my desert is liberty. She accepts this malignant son of Cain with blood on his hands purified by sun's flame. No longer struggling. No longer in pain. Run. Run. My heartbeat runs. My heart stands still. I'm thirsty. I thirst. A black belly, rain cloud passes overhead. Thunder. Lightning and thunder. The sky is raging. I am raging. I orphan cry without weeping until I'm kissed by a honey-lipped gecko drooling a drop of moist saliva into my throat which I greedily drink. My head spins. Is this what it feels like to be betrayed by a kiss? I dream desert dreams. Though I day fantasize about the desert, these are not the dreams I need. Howling wind dreams. Raging river dreams. Blue pill dreams. Spiky plant dreams. Red pill dreams. Angel and demon dreams. Mirage people dreams. Dreams where I crack and crumble in the desiccating heat then twirling into a dust devil dispersed into oblivion. Dream gap. My blood screams from the ground grabbing the attention of raven floating overhead. Tilting a wing, it slowly circles descends, circles descends, descends, circles, lands on the fragments that were my chest. Spreads the great wings giving me shelter from the heat and the dust. This is no ordinary raven. It is half black and half white. The black half has a white eye and the white half a black eye. Raven studies me. I slip deeper into the black eye, deeper into the white eye. Raven pecks at the rope binding me to the stakes. Is she liberty come to rescue me? With painstaking precision, she expertly sews my pieces back together using fine strands of yucca attached to the needle tip at the edge of the leaf. Before the final sutures, she drops three eggs into my belly, one black, one white, one half-half. I feel no pain. In fact, I drift into oblivion as if I've been drugged. When coherency returns, I look at my still-naked body and see an intact raggedy doll. Raven gives me a black flight feather from her right wing and a white flight feather from his left wing. I will see you again when you learn to fly for I have many stories to gift you. When will that be? Raven croaks, when moon splits into two waxen crescents, the stars tumble from the sky, all the colors bleed into white and black, and Kodamindi breathes into her saxophone unleashing a groaning wail inciting the Sawaro peoples to dance in rhythm. Or, when my eggs hatch and you sprout flight feathers. Whichever comes first Raven flaps the massing wings gaining just enough air to barrel roll and drop over the edge of the cliff into the abyss, soaring below me a thousand feet over red rocks. Not willing to wait for either Raven prophecy, I white-knuckle grasp a feather in each hand. Somewhere off in the distance, coyote wails like a shrieking woman. I follow Raven into the abyss and catch the wind. Dream gap or dream end? Greater than. It was the next morning, my mind fuzzy as it balanced between the liminal states of dream and wakefulness, 
outside the midden heap of my mental gyrations. It is a place of solace, a blissful time of purity outside awareness, that I first woke to what is my Elysian fields, red rock. Definitely, love at first sight. The allure wasn't only the extraordinary beauty but the complete silence. It felt like I was the first person on earth or the last such was the all-enveloping quietude. The location wasn't spectacular by Utah standards but it far exceeded my imagination, my fantasy. There was a courtship, of sorts, a romance kindled via the written word by an author deeply passionate for the southern Utah high desert. A long-distance, soul-seducing relationship from which the only possible outcome could be a deep, consuming love. Unlike most marriages, it has been an enduring love still burning strong drawing me back regularly for soul-satiating intercourse. An undercurrent always tugging at my subconscious the way a watery undertow overpowers pulling one deeper into the ocean. Fighting the flow is useless. The elation I was experiencing was the euphoria of here I satisfied. I was finally home for the first time. This is now. Today, 34 years and a few months beyond soul birth, I guide my rental over the same unpaved road, graded little better than in 1986, stopping at the same point where high clearance is required, pull to a stop, cut the lights, silence the engine. We have been in southern Utah for 12 days, just long enough for the mind cobwebs creeped by city life to begin clearing making way for moments of crystal clarity, mental acuity, soul softening. A waxing gibbous moon, a couple days from full, casts accent lighting highlighting outcrops and scrub juniper leaving the rest of the formations in cryptic shadow. Coyote or mountain lion could be crouching in the shadows. I hope so. Nothing awakens one to life like potential danger. I have no knowledge if either is prowling, weaving in and out of the penumbra such as our divergent evolutionary paths. There is enough moonlight to walk without encumbrance but I remain still. I am here alone having left my wife back at our lodgings knowing I will be back, a touch over a hundred mile round trip, long before she crawls out of the comfortable bed to walk the dogs in the morning brisk. For many reasons, I needed this trip like few I've needed in my life. My prickly angst sharpens between visits to the Colorado Plateau. Here, that angst, all my negative energy wears smooth as if they were rocks tumble polished at the bottom of a raging river. After each visit, I emerge sleek, unburdened, mellow internally, composed externally, palatable to polite society. I hadn't been here in five years so those rough edges were becoming dangerous. I was cutting myself in, occasionally, painting others. A couple of years previous, I had planned on using three of my six sabbatical weeks dodging all other human interactions, save my precious books, friends on paper, and the friends in my head, backpack camping the lower third of Utah. I'm getting older and wanted to take this trip before caducity sets in and I'm confined to fretting about whether my watery shit is a sign of deteriorating health or a reaction to something I ate. I come alive when immersed in this sacred wilderness. Gretel Ehrlich recognized that space has a spiritual equivalent and can heal what is divided and burdensome in us. There is so much torment in my soul, I need the space of the universe for healing. Southwest Utah with vast acres of lightly trammeled space is the next best medicine. I had carefully plotted peregrination treks to some of the fantastical formations under which I would roll out my sleeping bag for sleep, for meditative writing. Time was allotted to Kadiwampal discovering new, to me, sites, maybe a cliff dwelling to inhabit for a week and experience a sliver of the mindset of the ancient ones. And carving ample time to Boketo and see where my mind chooses to wander when unfettered. The expectation's epic. That fantasy was crushed by the bastard COVID-19. Thankfully, my wife and I found a way to spend two safe weeks airbing the south-central and southeast sections of the state. It's not camping, sleeping beneath a breathtaking blanket of comforting stars, waking to birdsong but it is better than suffering the flat Midwest without a break. We have dogs so long meandering treks into the unknown are not possible. 
Still, I have leveraged moments soothing the rat in a scorched bucket a clawing deep within. My years are advancing. My time left receding quickly. I grasp at the straws of what has been a lifelong dream, permanence in the desert, one which I increasingly believe will never come to fruition. When the ticks of the cooling engine cease, I open the car door and am slapped in the face. Not that you are an asshole. You made a fool of yourself and embarrassed me. I never want to speak to or see you again. Type of slap. A first cold day of autumn slap that arouses the senses making one acutely aware. And what was I aware of? Briskness letting my body know it is alive, the sweet aroma of juniper laced with desert sage in the early morning air on which my soul thrives, an essence telling me I have arrived. Alive and thrive equals I have arrived at my spiritual home. Praise the Lord. Allahu Akbar. Om. I enjoy the crepuscular hours where tree and rock appear amorphous in the dim light. When vision is supplemented by sound and smell creating a holistic interpretation of surroundings and imagination can run wild. Add to that the long shadows thrown by warm light and it is easily my favorite time of day. I clear space beneath a small juniper, it smells heavenly, where I sit in silent solitude drinking my tepid tea. It is not early grey tea. My only choice this morning a cheap fast food version of black tea cheaper by the millions. India spoiled me for most conventional teas. I wait for the sun's first rays to warm up the moon's reflected shine and give warm light to my surroundings. This entire situation is contrived to recreate our first meeting, rekindle the overwhelming hot blush of first love. This location is beautiful but not viscerally spectacular like delicate arch, the vertical rows of massive fins, or the seemingly infinite other red rock hoodoos, bridges, spires, pinnacles, goblins, buttes, and slot cannons clustered around the lower third of the state. But here, this exact location is where I first set eyes upon and consummated my burgeoning love with red rock. There are few emotions as powerful as first love. Incense coffin. Basking in the deathly silence, I flare up an ambrosial sprig of big basin sagebrush, positioning it so the light breeze carries the sweet smoke across my body. If I had a string attached to my incense coffin, mine is an enclosed distressed turquoise box with holes that block wind while still letting the incense smoke permeate the air, I would twirl it around spreading sage smoke like a censer consecrating the area ridding it of evil spirits, wandering ghosts, shindi, afrits, jinn, men and angles. I'm wearing a turquoise bead so I'm physically and psychologically safe from malevolent phantasms. I haven't encountered any since putting it on a few weeks so it is obviously working. Still, it can't hurt to clear the area of potential malignancies that would infiltrate my psyche distracting me from serene tranquility. Sage's Desert Perfume Lace it with juniper to create quixotic earth perfume. I enjoy running my palms over live sage plants then cupping my hands over my face to intensify the fragrance before rubbing it on my arms and clothing allowing me to carry the short-lived aroma on my person. As soon as I saw sage on this drive out west, it doesn't grow at my intersection of latitude and longitude, I pulled the car over going through my ritual before cutting off a few sprigs to liven up the car interior. It is one of the sprigs picked during the first days of our trip that I fired up on this last full day in southern Utah. It had dried under the intense, glass-amplified sun as it rested on the dashboard. Ambience created, I sit and wait expectantly for the sun to help consummate our reunion. This land of cannons and otherworldly rock formations seems to be created as if God was a mad architect demolishing earth in a fit of abject rage throwing and smashing and splattering rock in every direction. Or raising and raising in response to a millennia-long psilocybin binge. I imagine her coming down from the high and exclaiming what the fuck have I done? before quickly marveling a this most amazing landscape anywhere on the planet. She would definitely abdicate heaven for Utah. If this is creation under the influence of a powerful hallucinogenic, 
Sign me up. Tap my vein, insert the needle, open the spigot and set me free. The red rock in southern Utah varies in shade from near white at the white rim, to the pinks of Bryce Canyon, the terracotta of Canyonlands, the milk chocolate in Capitol Reef, the almost black desert varnish coating the rock creating a playground for ancient artists to create petroglyphs lasting for hundreds of years providing hints into their minds. Scholars disagree on the symbology interpretations so the hints, in many cases, are, so far, indecipherable. Much of southern Utah is the color of drying blood before it's been dead so long it becomes black. It is like the whole bottom third of the state is a gigantic, open wound. Begging the question, what being was slayed or is earth bleeding from the repeated geologic upheavals and erosions? It is a vast amount of blood. Still less than the spilled blood of the Jews, Moors, Aboriginals, Gypsies, witches, or anyone not willing to kowtow to the oppressive structure of the Catholic Church, not to mention the souls bloodied by pedophile priests long protected by the Church Patriarchy, and its misguided efforts to advance the Gospel by the sword starting when Simon, the Church architect, cut off Malchus, a servant to Caiaphas, ere which Jesus healed including an admonishment to the perpetrator for violating the teaching to turn the other cheek. The Church did not fall far from the Peter tree missing Christ's lessons ensuring violence has been part and parcel of their doctrine. Are there any of the seven deadly sins the Church has not elevated to art form? The Church left no chance of repentant healing for the untold millions their holy sword severed from the tree of life. How could they repent when they were dead? By established Church doctrine, the unrepentant murdered were actually being condemned to hell. I don't believe in a separate realm called hell. If I did believe in a physical hell, I would expect all those Church fathers to be wailing alongside Satan and his demons. However, I don't believe in this separate hell, even if hell believes in me. No. Earth encompasses both heaven and hell in yin-yang existence, and I love both. How often have I experienced dichotomies in my life in complete savage dissonance, discordant like disco is to music? Too many to tell. The heaven of love coupled with the hell of betrayal. The heaven of Van Gogh's paintings could not save him from the hellions tormenting his soul. I've long known Canyon Country is my heaven. The physical separation from this insanely beautiful high desert is my living hell. Another personal hell is moving through life fractured, always seeking to reassemble the infinitude of shattered, scattered pieces to fit my jagged holes and become whole. The nearest I come to feeling complete, physically, emotionally, spiritually is while walking in wilderness, in this particular wilderness. Forests, may. Mountains, lovely. Canyonlands, heavenly. I am also hounded by the hell of believing I am unworthy of love, never feeling lovable, nor loved. Perhaps that is why I immersed myself in the church during a particularly deep hell phase. The church seemed to offer a lifeline, albeit illusory, of unbounded, unconditional love to pull myself up from the depths, a lifeline severed by betrayal from within the church itself. There's a delicate purr in the shadows. Mountain lion? Bobcat? The hair on my arm stand up. Gotta love the amygdala. Both cats would be interesting to see especially when not sheltered behind the glass of a zoo prison or the steel of the rental car. Safety be damned. Give me real reality. I cut my hands behind my ears and radar back and forth to locate the sound. The pitch is too high for either cat, the rumble too low. What is it? I peer intently in the direction trying to identify what being is making the sound. Catch a glimpse if I can. It's moving closer. It's, it's, a hummingbird? The purr is the rapid vibrato hum of wings in flight as it zigzag staccato approaches. The hovering wings move blur fast, faster even than the screaming hands of Zakir Hussain who I saw playing the tabla in concert from Second Row Center in Pune. His hands tap danced on the tightly stretched goat skins faster than my eyes could focus. 
This feathery guest is a rufous hummingbird, an occasional visitor to these parts. The festive coat is rusty. The throat patch a rich, burnt orange. How can so much beauty exist in such a tiny package? Perhaps the rufous is listed as an occasional visitor because the feathers blend perfectly with the surrounding red rock making it difficult to spot especially when one is deeply absorbed contemplating the grandiose red giants dwarfing human and bird. A hummingbird's brain accounts for a huge 4.2% of its weight. Proportionally, it has the largest relative brain mass of any bird. The human brain makes up a mere 2% of body weight. Does that mean the bird is twice as smart for its size as humans? That would be a blow to the ego of many people especially the sheeple believing T. Rump has any vision or leadership skills. The hummer hovers a foot from my eyes before alighting on the rim of my teacup where it probes the liquid with the slenderest of tongues causing gentle ripples to skim across the translucent, brown surface. No milk in my tea. It must have been drawn by the scent of the honey sweetener. The one tiny eye facing me is deep black with a white, pinpoint reflection from the moon. I can't help but stare into it. The blackness is deathless. And familiar? but this is the first rufus I've seen other than in field guides. How can it feel familiar? The longer I stare, the deeper I am pulled in by a slowly forming vortex and the less connected to reality I feel. Muddled. Befuddled. Disconcerted. I feel a pull inside my chest. I close my own eyes severing the tie bringing instant relief. I feel the light weight of the bird leaving my mug. The murmur of the reverberating wings grows louder, Doppler style, as it moves toward my head. The soft draft from the wing flaps caresses my cheek. I dare not open my eyes for fear the vortex will reform and suck my soul into the abyss. A touch, down feather soft, tickles my inner ear. The hummer must be probing my ear canal with its long tongue. I hope it has no sharp points that could compromise my eardrum. Tinnitus sucks but worse is not being able to hear at all. The tickling stops when a familiar warm, dry wind washes over me. I open my eyes to see the being known as grandfather sitting directly in front of me. Most of our encounters is him sitting Indian style on naked earth with a Dalai Lama-esque smile of continual bliss beneath his milky eyes. I assumed it was to maximize contact with and connection to Earth Mother. I've mixed feelings about Grandfather's visit. When we are together, I grow numinous wisdom and all seems comprehensible to my tiny intellect. When we part, when he parts, it's always Grandfather that severs our connection, I suffer severe bouts of a catalepsy wondering if I will ever truly comprehend anything he explains to me. It's like calculus class in college. When the professor explained concepts up on the board in mathematical jargon, it all seemed so simple that notes were a waste of time. Later in the evening, those straightforward concepts jumbled and doing homework felt half backwards. There's something different about him today. What is it? Hmm? I scrutinize him trying to identify what's changed. The hair is still jet black. His nose is proudly Aztecan. His body is sinewy. What is it? It is my eyes, grandson. I forgot he has this uncanny ability to know what I'm thinking sometimes before I know what I'm thinking. Your eyes? I look closely. His eyes are no longer milky. They are clear as a crystalline mountain lake with a black pupil and an iris the deep brown of desert varnish so dark it appears black except for a constellation of gold flecks. Grandfather, how is it you can see? I have always been able to see. I don't mean how can you see with your inner eye. I mean, you were physically blind but now your eyes are clear. How did you regain your vision? Grandson, very little is as you perceive. You need to learn to understand underside the surfaces. I came to you as a blind, Indian sage because I knew it would pique your interest, squeeze through your defenses. You have a deeply ingrained spirituality you stuff deep behind logic walls. I came to you in a form you would readily accept. 
a simple trick to circumvent the logic you wield as a defense mechanism. Logic? As a defense mechanism? Logic is the most effective way to understand existence. Logic is how we know the intersection of the ultimate meaning of life, the universe, and everything is 42. I know the answer is not 42 but I have a difficult time containing my inner smartass. Yes, that is true, according to Douglas Adams, 42 is the answer. But what is 42? Logic gets you the number. Interpreting the number to understand its impact on existence requires unlogic. The opposite of constricting logic. The opposite of logic is not a logic. The opposite of logic is intuition. Intuition is grounded in and manifested by the spiritual side. Modern people are so far removed from all things wild, the ultimate source of spirituality, bridging the logic-intuition gap is nearly impossible. Spiritual transcendence is why I always appear to you in the outdoors. Logic as a logical is utter bullshit. No use arguing. Next topic. I didn't expect to see you here, in this place, grandfather. I figured I would see you last week at Newspaper Rock because of the similarity to the petroglyph sites in New Mexico the first two times we met. But I was at Newspaper Rock. I was the humanoid petroglyph northwest of the wheel in the center part of the panel with the two antennae each split into lazy wise. And I was the small, tan wren with a curved beak in the sage bush at Wire Pass Trail before you entered the slot and had to retreat to the up and over because your dog was unable to descend the ladder. I was the black beetle at Wired Slot Canyon. Thanks for not letting your dogs eat me. I was the large raven at Bryce Canyon who ate your generous offering of dried meat. Did you not see the glint in my obsidian eye? Would you have died if the dog ate you? How can the non-living die? Okay. Stupid question. Anyway. I figured there was something about the ancient etchings that gave you energy. This place doesn't seem spiritual to me so I'm surprised to meet you here. Not spiritual? Come, come now, grandson. Is not this place sacred to you? Is not this place where you first fell in love with red rock and desert? Is not this the place you first felt you arrived at home for the first time in your life? Is not this the place where you knew in an instant you wanted to spend the better part of your life in what you call the Southwest? Is this not a perfect example of metanoia? Is not this the place where you first met me? Do not all these occurrences elevate the mundane, even the profane, to the sacred? Yes. 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 No. I guess so. This is not where I first met you. In my lifetime line, we first met in New Mexico at the Petroglyph site in 2018 when I had a job interview in Albuquerque. My first trip to Arches was many years ago, 30-ish, and it was my one and only previous visit to this specific location. Perhaps you are confused since you exist outside time. I emphasized my last statement turning it from question to definitive declaration. Grandfather has repeatedly told me he lives outside of time hence the concepts of before and after no longer hold meaning for him. I had to create a framework to facilitate our communication and understanding. It is true that before and after do not govern my existence and that I can enter the human experience at any point in the space-time continuum. I was referring to your lifeline, speaking in your tenses to minimize your confusion. Viewed along your lifeline, we met many times prior to the rattlesnake encounter in the place you call Nuevo Mexico beginning with our first encounter on your very first night here. I don't recall meeting you that morning. I woke to bird song and sun and red rock and glorious emptiness. Not another human or spirit being as far as I could see or hear. But, I did have an interesting dream that night. A knowing smile creases grandfather's face. My form at the time was the same as when I came to you today, a die tihi, what your people call a hummingbird, a rufus die tihi to be precise. I've always loved their coloration. They remind me of sun's awakening. 
probably because they are the sun in disguise come to earth. I know about your dream, too, because I gave you the dream. I implanted it in your soul. Why a da, da ye, fuck it. Some languages don't work in my mouth. Why hummingbird? No reason. Many reasons, grandson. Dai Yi Ti is a sacred medicine being, a healer to my Navajo ancestors. We not only heal, we carry joy and love on our wings which shoots off into the world when we fly. My Aztec forefathers, they may have been my descendants in your timeline, recognize them as messengers between the worlds. I am of multiple worlds. And so it goes I move easiest between them in the in Dai Yi Tihi form. Dai Yi Tihi is tiny. Dai Yi Tihi is very fast. Our agility can slip through the shifting doors of perception. And I love to get high on pollen then watch the colors kaleidoscope blur as I fly faster and faster on my journeys. I come as Dai Yi Tihi, primarily, because it is fun. That makes sense, sort of. The fun part I get. The hallucination aspect is intriguing and scary. Bothering me, though, is why do I not have memories of your visit? I came before the sun rose, left before you fully returned from night wanderings to your body. I whispered wisdom into your ears. Not ultimate wisdom, mind you. A knowledge tailored to help you navigate that phase of your journey. And planted the dream. The journey again. The life is a series of destinations again. Grandfather gave me an entire spiel about my life being a series of destinations inside a collection of phases. It's a concept I have yet to fully grasp. Probably won't until I slip into the spirit phase. Grandfather, tell me how a hummingbird, correction, how you in hummingbird form can plant dreams into my soul. It begins with the flowers. Flowers? Are you fucking with me? Yes, flowers. Your first visit here coincided with the blooming of the sacred datura. Do you recall? Yes. I'm aware of the sacred datura. It has a beautiful, largish milky white flower and, though poisonous, can be transformed into a hallucinogen. I read about it in the Don Juan books by Carlos Castaneda. That was when I was deep in my wannabe phase. It is something, at the time, I wanted to experience but never had the opportunity nor, I must admit, the courage to offset myself that far from reality. One bad acid trip was enough. There were quite a few detour around then. I didn't touch them for the fear the active components might penetrate my skin and put me in a world of hurt. That is all true from your logical perspective but misses the essence of the being. Dreams reside deep inside of flowers, the soft sticky pollen grains are dreams in solid form. The pollen color determines both the type and intensity of the dream. Pastels, pale yellows, Breezy corals carry dreams as ephemeral as spider silk swaying in a light afternoon breeze. The deep colors, fire reds, cobalt blues, carry dreams as passionate as a first kiss between lovers. Some contain the nightmares that cause us to awake thrashing, soaked with sweat, bones chilled to ice as if death chewed on us in the twilight between sleep time and awakening. So you are saying dreams are not only subconscious manifestations. They also come from flowers? Not quite. All dreams come from the flowers. The subconscious is irrelevant. I think Siggy, er, Sigmund may not agree. Anyway, how do the dreams get from the flowers into human heads? Flowers can't walk around finding dream needers nor are flowers part of our typical diet yet dreams are commonplace. How is this possible? Trapped him in a logic web. Freud is irrelevant. He had mama issues. His first mistake was not understanding that beings other than humans also dream. All beings dream. The being transferring dreams from flowers to other beings, including you humans, is the hummingbird. But all humans dream. We are ubiquitous. The hummers are confined to specific locations. How do those far from hummingbird realms get dreams? 
Hummingbirds are spirit beings. They can go anywhere at any time. Just like me. Spirit hummingbirds? No shit? How do they implant dreams? No shit. The shimmery hummingbirds hovering before ruby-throated flowers gather sweet pollen on thread-thin tongues. They fly to recipients under the cover of night, hover next to their heads whispering the dreams born of pollen into ears. They flick their tongues through the ear membrane stretching long to plant sticky pollen grains deep into souls ensuring dreams are never more than a sleep away, ensuring dreams are available to us whenever we close our eyes. When there are no more flowers to grow dreams, when there are no more hummingbirds to plant those dreams into ears during the little death of sleep, dreams for all beings will cease. And without dreams, the elixir's inspiring creativity to sprout from deep within the soul of man will dry up consuming souls in the process. Without dreams, creativity will be stifled. Devoid of creativity inspired by dreams man, himself, will no longer be fully human. Little more than a shell, actually. Without dreams, humanity is little more than nothing. What dreams did you plant in my soul? This might be a chance for a Joseph to interpret my dreams. I collected pollen from a variety of flowers, including Datura, ensuring a unique dream of passion and feeling. But that no longer matters, grandson. That was half your life ago. That destiny has long since been crossed and ceases to matter. Your soul has grown much since so, retelling what I told you will now feel like the babblings of a child. There is no use rehashing the irrelevant. Suffice it to say, without that dream your passion for deserts would not be very strong and we would not be here and you're now. We are all connected. I've got to keep him talking so he doesn't dissolve into dust, again. Maybe this time I can get straight answers to my questions regarding him and our oddly, frustratingly, satisfying alliance. So, you were a hummingbird on our first visit. And you came to me as a hummingbird today before showing his grandfather. Grandson, as I alluded to, I came to you an ancient Indian shaman motif to focus your attention. Humans are slaves to emotional stimuli. Your spirit is intrigued by the mystique of the enlightened Indian, an avatar you hold in high reverence. I showed as blind to help you reach for understanding beyond what you can see. I can appear as one of the many Indians I was in my lives, Dai Tihi, a whisper on the bleeding edge of a gentle breeze, or, well, I can present myself in infinite forms. It is a benefit of being non-corporeal. Are you a shapeshifter? Shapeshifting is a skill nurtured by those with a physical body. I have no physical component so there is no body to shift into other shapes. I guess that makes sense, sort of. But why not simply come to me as yourself? That would make our hist, er, fudu, futu story together so much easier. Not possible, grandson. I have no instantiated self. Remember the four phases? Very clearly. I had a different human body during each cycle in every phase. What would my real self then be? The first? The last? The anima? Uh, what's anima? You know it is the soul or, if you are less religiously inclined, the psyche. It is the fundamental, indivisible, non-transmutable essence of a being that is woven into the collective consciousness that flits between beings temporarily during dreams and permanently upon death. Sounds like you are talking about reincarnation? In a loose sense. A loose sense? Reincarnation is the belief that the non-physical essence of a living being starts a new life in a different physical form or body, generally predicated on karma, after biological death. The religious push for karma determining if a being moves up or down the food chain is a man-made addition to a naturally occurring phenomenon to manipulate people into acting a certain way. It is pretty much the same scare tactic as the concept of hell where hell is a tortured existence. So, you are saying karma plays no part in the next life? Correct. Reincarnation also says the soul leaves after physical death. And that is incorrect how?
Death is not the only time the soul leaves the body. It departs the body on a regular basis. Dreams are the soul leaving the physical to wander the spirit realms frequently returning with wisdom. Death can occur when the soul does not return for the waking. It's why dreams are referred to as the little death. A coma is a long absence by the soul in the dream world. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Hold on. You said dreams come from flowers. Now you are saying dreams are soul wanderings? Grandson, again you are getting stuck in your illogical either or logic. Both are true. How? Think on it for a while. It will come to you, maybe in a dream. Grandfather's face breaks into a massive, I know something you don't, smirk. Dead end. Retrace steps out of this labyrinth and try another exploration. You said we met many times before the rattlesnake encounter. How come I don't remember any of them? I can't imagine any encounter with you would be lost to me, unless you can also erase memories? You remember. No, no, I don't remember. Sure you do. You are blocking your own memories. I will plant a few seeds in your mind and see if they germinate. Here are a few, overhang. Rattling. Mouse. The overhang and rattling could have been anything. The mention of mouse, likely a kangaroo rat, triggered a memory. I was backpacking with my sister in the needles. She tented. I slept outside protected under an overhang with enough angle to watch the Milky Way and wish upon the shooting stars. Fearing rain is a Midwest-born habit. Rain in Canyonlands is fairly rare and the skies were clear. That was long ago. I forget what I wished for. I've often imagined myself sitting for hours into days unto years under such an overhang looking out on the vastness of punctuated emptiness leveraging the perceptual isolation to become one with earth consciousness. In that fantasy, I descend into meditation before crossing sticks into extreme anxiety, hallucinations, bizarre thoughts, temporary senselessness, and depression driving extended sensory deprivation finally coming out the other side thinking deep thoughts bordering on wisdom. The benefit well worth the risk to my mental stability. During that night, there was repeated rattling in the pots and pans that kept waking me up. We had left them on a rock after dinner knowing we would need them in the morning to prepare our breakfast eats. Can't scramble over rocks long on an empty stomach. Anyway, at one point after the rattling stopped, I woke up on my back and saw this itty-bitty kangaroo rat perched on the lip of my sleeping bag staring at me with black eyes that seemed much too large for its tiny head. Yes, grandfather. I remember a tiny kangaroo rat at the edge of my sleeping bag staring into my soul when I opened my eyes. It frightened me and I reacted sending it flying into never, never land. Grandfather belly laughs while rubbing his aged hand over the crown of his head. I was that mouse, grandson. When you flung me, I slammed into a wall and was knocked unconscious. An unfortunate twist of circumstances. I had a message for you that was never delivered. It would have helped you shortcut upcoming trials in your life. Instead, you had to trudge through the pain. Such is life. Grandfather, it was a kangaroo rat. Why do you insist on calling it a mouse? What is in a name? Names give us clarity. Wrong, grandson. All names carry baggage, preconceived notions that obfuscate reality. They are colored with another's vision. Take a cue from Will Shakespeare. He said, and I quote, that which we call a rose. By any other name would smell as sweet. Give me a break. He was speaking metaphorically, poetically. Names help us visualize an entity and categorize in our minds for logical, but logic is illogical you say, for quick recollection and understanding. The amygdala relies on quick categorization to keep us safe. And that is exactly the problem. Problem? It is the solution. Still blind, grandson? Nope. I see things clearly. 
My eyes have improved so I can even see things yonder without needing distance glasses anymore. Reading, though, does require assistance. Okay Mr. Logical. Let's try this. What comes to your mind when I say, Karen? An entitled white woman with a bad haircut leveraging her white privilege with a high and mighty attitude who insists on getting her own way at the expense of others frequently demanding to see the person in charge to vent her frustrations. Are all people named Karen that way? Obviously, no. And when I say raven, what comes to your mind? An intelligent, large black bird soaring high over the land. What about white raven? Albinos? Nope. Ravens with white plumage that are not albinos. Fantasy, they don't exist, except, maybe, in movies or books. Therein lies the danger in names. You exclude an entire set of beings because your narrow and incorrect definition of raven is stuck in black. The white raven is integral in the stories of my peoples. When I walked with the Aztecs, we called this being, Kukulatl. As a Navajo, we use the term Gagii. In the pre-time, all ravens were white. Up north, halfway between here and the land of the Great Bear people in Alyeska, still live the white raven people. All first ravens were white with a beautiful singing voice. In those early days, the Creator became unhappy with the greed and corruption on earth and decided to take away fire as punishment. Without heat, the earth started turning into a frigid hell. Raven, seeing the plight of the suffering, volunteered to fly up to sun and bring back fire. Up, up Raven flew, up, up with a branch in his bill. As Raven neared the sun his feathers were all singed and his larynx was half-cooked, but the branch ignited and Raven brought fire back to earth. From that day on, Ravens were black. Except for the white Raven clan reminding us of the great sacrifice made by Raven for all earth beings and the debt we owe to them. So, if names obfuscate reality, what is the alternative allowing us to perceive reality? When you encounter a being, ignore the name, and simply observe their behaviors. It takes a long time but it is the only way to understand the individual. Once you understand the individual, the collective name is irrelevant. Hmm, I don't quite get it. Let's see if I appeal to your logical side. I believe your people observe what is called the golden rule. Yes. We do. It is the ideal way to live life passed down by many religious traditions. Treating people as you want to be treated creates harmony. It would create an existence you Navajo call, Peugeot, peace, balance, beauty, and harmony. Your golden rule is a self-centered practice. It is heartless leading to disharmony. Assuming everyone wants to be treated as you want to be treated assumes everyone is the same as you. All beings are unique. There is not another like you nor like me nor like Raven nor like anyone. You love books. Can you imagine gifting a book to T. Rump? How about a science book? He would view it as an insult. I guess that is Logi, hmm, if not the golden rule, what? Treat people as they want to be treated. If they can speak, ask them how they want to be treated then respect them and treat them as such. If you don't share a common language, put in the hard work to study them to foster understanding of who they are and how to best to treat them. Hmm, I can sort of follow what you are saying. Don't take my word for it. Try it and see how your relationships grow. Anyway, what was the message kangaroo ret you had for me? It no longer matters. It was for a specific point in your life's line. That moment is past. You have matured beyond that stage rendering the message irrelevant. And our time today is coming to a close. I won't waste our time dredging up uselessness. Coming to a close. I have so many questions. I must distract him to keep him here. Grandfather, about the dream you gave me those many years ago. What did, what does it mean? Grandson, think of me as a candle in the night. I give you just enough illumination for a few footsteps. 
As you move, the cone of candlelight moves with you illuminating just enough for a few more steps. If you were to see the entire picture you would either be so eager you miss the awe-filled journey to the destination or too frightened to move. Either way, your growth would be stunted. Yeah, but the dream, I've been struggling for decades to understand. It drive me bonkers, what does it mean? I gotta know. Grandson, just because I was the simple messenger planting flowers dreams doesn't mean I know your dream or can interpret it. There are many influences adding to the final form including you being a white man with a perspective of life I will never fully grasp. Can you at least explain some of the symbology? I can try but there are no guarantees I will be correct in my interpretations. The dreams have origins in the flowers but their actual shape depends upon the makeup of your singularly unique soul and singularly unique destiny. Come on, by now, I know you are more than a simple messenger. The insights and wisdom you bestow are from someone with deep understanding and great knowledge. A messenger is a medium, a wire connecting telephones. You are both source and medium elevating you above simple messenger status. Somewhat true, grandson. You are learning. Still, it is not for me to solve your riddles or fill in the gaps in your destiny search. A person must fulfill his own destiny, not someone else's. Filling in those dream gaps are part of your journey. If I were to fill them in for you, I would be cheating you out of the magic of discovery. The journey, your hero journey, is key to your growth. Therefore, I can't tell you what you want to know because it would derail you from that journey. How can you say I'm on a hero's journey? Hero? Me? I've done nothing but struggle my entire life. I'm no hero. If I was a hero or going to be a hero, well, I've done bad things, evil things, I'm more an Angel Kaido, a fallen angel. To say or imply anything else is chimerical. Do not try giving me hope. I gave up hope, gave up a long, long time ago. There is no ablution that could ever cleanse my soul let alone open a road to a hero's journey. Grandson, I sense some of this is rooted in you feeling unlovable and unloved. Maybe. I'm not really sure. Probably. Your mother loved you dearly. My mother, God rest her soul, was the one person in my life to accept and weather my contumacious tendencies and still love me. But she's gone now both her and my dad, eaten alive from the inside by cancer. I visualized the emaciated shells of both in the last stages, confined to their beds. They were both energetic individuals, before the fucking cancer. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know my mother? I've met your mother. She entered the spirit realm a few months ago in your timeline. Really? She's, she's here? Not here. Elsewhere in the spirit realm. She is a liaison helping struggling human children. Her heart beats strong for kids. Kids. Grandkids. She always loved children. Is there any chance I could I see her? That is not one of your destinations. So, no? No. How about my father? Is he here? Is he one of my destinations? Yes, he is here. No, he is not a destination. He spends much of his time fixing broken things. He is a master fixer and keeps the spirit world in tip-top shape. When not fixing, he fishes for pike. We have massive spirit pike in the spirit world. Strictly catch and release. We spirits have no need for food. Yes, yes, he could fix anything, is there any way I could just see them for a moment? Just a glimpse. Just to tell them I love them? They both gave you what you needed before they entered their spirit phase. There is nothing else they can do to help you find your destinies. Seeing them would distort your journey, you are journeying true in the now possibly keeping you stuck in additional cycles during your fourth phase. Please, don't leave me empty-handed. Help me to understand the damn dream then. 
I have picked it apart and reassembled a million different ways but am still stymied. I could solve 1000 koans, 10,000 even but would be no closer to understanding my own dream. I'm frustrated. I'm grasping at straws. You are my only hope. Can you at least tell me what the symbols represent? If not, add gift me a Rosetta Stone so I can begin interpreting on my own. All in good time. Know this, dreams are memories of the future, each gap in your dream sequence is a future destination. To shortcut the journey would leave gaping holes in the dream. The journey you are on will fill in the gaps until you have the whole picture. By then, you should, if you pursue the creative tendencies within your heart, also have the wisdom to understand the symbology. It is all up to you, if not in this cycle of the fourth phase then a future cycle or, even, in the final spirit phase. Are you telling me I may not know my purpose until after death, er, until I enter the spirit phase which may be many years into my future? Grandfather has hinted I will be a revelator, a giver of divine revelation. He never said it would be during my current incarnation. If not now, when? I do not know, grandson. Remember, I'm a candle, not the sun. You say you have tried everything, does that include catoptromancy? Catop? What? Catoptromancy. Foretelling the future using a reflection. The ancient ones could see into futures using a reflective surface such as your modern mirror. It helps to be under the influence of the sacrament psilocybin to eliminate inhibitions and blockers. In your case, one blocker is the logic you use as a crutch. It hobbles revelation. Another is your unbelief in yourself. You refuse to entertain the truth you are on a hero's journey. As long as you reject that truth, you will be stuck in this phase. For who knows how many cycles. It all depends upon you. Well, there is no way I'm going to drop magic mushrooms. I lack the cajones. Too scary. I will need to find another way. That is your choice, grandson. I am only a simple messenger. Grandfather, can you at least explain why Raven laid eggs inside of me? That was just creepy. I've had both puppies and kittens born in my lap from pet animal mothers that trusted me beyond reason or rationale. As my corpse lies petrifying in this glorious wilderness, I imagine raven or rattlesnake or coyote curled up in my lap depositing their own eggs or newly deposited young for safekeeping in the warmth of decaying flesh. It comes as no surprise to me the three animals I identified are predators with whom I feel a deep affinity also tend to be loners, beings preferring solitude to pack life. I once thought I was part of a wolf pack but the pack dissolved. Raven laid eggs inside your belly? His head tilts like an inquisitive dog. Is that so? Tell me more. She placed three of her eggs into my belly before sewing it shut with the yucca needle and thread. One black, one white, one half-half. A half-half egg? Are you sure this is what occurred in your dream? Yes. It is one of my more vivid and long-lasting remembrances. Were the eggs cold or warm? I have to think back, enter the dream at that very point and feel. Um, they were warm, definitely warm. Living eggs, very interesting indeed. Unique. Is there anything else Raven did? Yes. She gave me one black flight feather and one white flight feather. Raven gave you two different color feathers. Yes. Yes she did. Where did she get the white feather from? From? From herself, of course. She was a half black, half white raven. She plucked it off her wing. Grandfather's eyes widen. Focus intently into me not just on me. Raven was a half-half? Half black and half white. You are sure about that? It wasn't the glinting sun playing tricks with the glossy black feathers. Yes. I am very sure. I saw her from multiple angles. She was definitely half black and half white. The blackest black. The brightest white. 
This changes things. Changes? Changes what? Changes how? Changes good or bad? Grandfather gives me a conspiratorial look. Okay. I can tell you this but I must whisper in your ear so the CHIADI do not overhear. Wearing sacred turquoise protects you from evil spirits but it doesn't prevent evil from hearing what I am about to reveal and using it to infect others with ghost sickness and destroy their hajou. And so your eyes do not project my words into the world where the clever ghosts can see them, close them tight. Wait, how did you know I was wearing turquoise? It radiates protective powers that I can feel. It is that same power that keeps CHIDI away. Now, close your eyes. Grandfather sidles next to me, covers my eyes, puts his lips next to my ear. I am covering your eyes with my hand in case you open them reflexively. Now listen carefully to my words. In the past, I've always felt comfortable in Grandpa's presence. The worm has turned. Not turned, the worms are dancing in the moonlit night. Grandfather, you are frightening me. Do not worry, grandson. You are safe. Now relax as I channel earth energy and whisper this vision into your head. I feel the earth rumbling in the seat of my pants. Grandfather? His hands close tighter on my eyes. Concentrate with me. Do not be distracted. Listen only to my voice narrating the vision. Block everything else out. The rumbling continues growing louder. Like a herd of buffalo coming my way. I get fidgety. Grandfather presses down on my shoulder steadying me. A warm, dry wind whooshes away from me. The warmth feels comforting, almost amniotic, in the cool of the morning. Dude, yo, dude. You alright, dude? Grandfather shakes my shoulder. Dude. Grandfather never called me dude before. I open my eyes. What I thought was a hand covering my eyes is actually my hat. I raise the bill, blink a few times until I can focus. A guy decked out in mountain biking clothing stands over me. Dude. I'm trying to get this van of mountain bikers deeper into the backcountry. You are sitting close to the road. Would you mind moving to the side until we pass? I didn't want to hit you or anything. I scan the area. No, grandfather. Just this guy in a large, high clearance, white van toting mountain bikes on top. How did he get that thing this far when I couldn't get my SUV any further? Um, sorry. I was, I was, uh, I was, meditating. No worries, dude. We just want to get by. Sorry for disturbing your meditation. It's a great day for it. Peace out. He saunters back to the car shaking his head and shrugging to whoever is seated in the passenger seat. He puts the van into motion rumbling the earth and enters the dipsy doodle I refuse to attempt in the SUV. I look around for grandfather. Off in the near distance, perched at the top of an ancient, gnarly juniper, a very large raven, a half-black, half-white raven staring at me. It appears to be smirking. Maybe now I will get some answers about my dream. I start toward the tree but am stopped by the van crossing my path blocking my view. When it passes, I return my gaze toward the tree. The raven is gone. I work my way across the undulating rock to where it was perched. Directly beneath where the raven was, I find an egg-shaped rock, a moist, body-temperature black rock that is half black and half white. October 29, 2020